Hi, I'm Arlen Walker, and I'm live from Pelham's Wasteland. Today, I have a couple things I want to talk about. Um, the first thing is just a great big thank you to all the listeners. We passed 100 total listens, um, maybe today, maybe yesterday, very recently. Um, but it's great. It's it's super cool. I know that's not huge numbers necessarily for um, a lot of people, but it feels super cool to me to have you guys listening to my podcast. That's um, really neat. So thank you for listening. And I hope you have found out about some cool games that you w otherwise would not have known about, since that's kind of the one of the core goals of my, my podcast. Aside from that, we're going to talk about a couple of things. One, we're going to talk about um, definitions of and ideas about the OSR, and then I think I'm going to do a little bit of actual play, example play, um, from Blade of the Iron Throne to give another idea of kind of how cool the system is, because I think it's so cool. Um, and then, yeah, there may well be some other stuff. This is going to be sort of a, a miscellaneous grab bag episode. Um, but if you like miscellaneous episodes, you should stay tuned. So one of the things I've been thinking about is the term OSR and not the like political community connection thing that some people are concerned about, but specifically what sort of games can we or should we categorize as OSR? And part of that is I'm thinking about it as opposed to the term retro clone. Um, Retro clone to me speaks really to a clone of original or advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Um, neither term has Dungeons and Dragons anywhere in the title, um, but to me, retro clone kind of speaks to this idea that this is a game that is a clone of early D and D. With modifications and edits and, you know, something like Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea, where it's got kind of its own theme and its own setting going on, but really is heavily based on AD&D. In which case, what is OSR? Is OSR just any modern game that seeks to revitalize an older game? Um, and this comes into play when you talk about games like, for instance, Zweihander. So Zweihander, for those who don't know, is a modern game based on um, Warhammer fantasy role-playing, especially first and second editions. I gather that Zweihander kind of was created while Warhammer was on its third edition, uh, which changed a lot of things, had a narrative dice mechanic because it was um, from Fantasy Flight Games and a lot of people didn't like it, and some people really did. Anyway, Zweihander, is, is Zweihander OSR, do you think? Because I guess it depends on what sort of old school do you have to be reviving to be old school revival or renaissancing to be old school renaissance um does warhammer fantasy role-playing first and second edition count as the kind of old school or is it just 
OD&D and AD&D. And I think it's it's very interesting. And we might as well include um, Zweihander on OSR stuff. Because it's, A, just because it's a cool game. Um, and also because it kind of creates a new space for the term OSR beyond just retro clone, as I see it. If, if retro clone is going to be a term for recreations of early D&D in particular, then OSR can be a term for recreations of all sorts of things. And so other games, RuneQuest, role-playing in Glorantha, RuneQuest is not a um, system that, to my knowledge, has ever been out of print for that long, but RuneQuest role-playing in Glorantha is in some ways that same kind of OSR thing. It's using an older RuneQuest system and trying to revitalize it and rebuild it and restructure it and turn it into something kind of new and interesting, but that also has its roots in the old thing. In the case of um, RQG, it doesn't have as long between um, RuneQuest 6 or Mithras and RuneQuest role-playing in Glorantha, but there is still some of that recreation. And then that gets into what I what caused me to think about it originally, which is Blade of the Iron Throne. And Blade of the Iron Throne is a game that takes an older system, that being Riddle of Steel, and tries to um, sand off some of the edges, smooth out some of the things, make it work more kind of consistently, and um, create a new sort of thematic space for it to take place in, and um, generally kind of restructure and reshape, while also using what is still basically just the core mechanic of um, Riddle of Steel. And so, you know, is that old school renaissance? Well, I don't know. 2002 feels like a long time ago to me, but I'm younger than a lot of the other OSR guys. So uh, it may not feel like that long ago to you guys. Um, I was in, I was in like second grade in 2002. Um, anyway, so I was definitely not playing Riddle of Steel when it came out. Um, but anyway, yeah, that's kind of what I'm thinking about is what, what sort of old school thing does something have to be a revival of to be OSR? And is there room for all of these other OSR or OSR adjacent games like Zweihander, like Blade of the Iron Throne, that are recreations of games that aren't OD&D or AD&D? Um, and I don't know. I, I am certainly not an authority. And in some ways, I think you could say, well, it doesn't matter if... Arlen says OSR, you can understand what he's talking about, even if he's got some weird definition. And when somebody else, you know, somebody like Jason Hobbs says OSR, he might mean something else and that's okay. And that's totally true too. Um, but yeah, I don't know. This is a, this is a topic that if you listen to it, it would be really great to hear a call in with your thoughts about the OSR and, um, 
what sort of games ought to be put under the heading? Should it be this kind of general catch-all term for anything that is um, a recreation of an older game? Does it just refer to D20 roll high games? Does something like the Black Hack count as OSR? Ooh, that's an interesting question because the Black Hack uses its own kind of core mechanic, even though it is clearly really heavily inspired by early D&D. Um, I don't know. That's that's a very interesting question, too. Um, I tend to think that the Black Hack would count as OSR um, by the sort of fairly loose um, and fairly inclusive definition that I have put out. But I could see somebody, I could even see somebody saying, you know what, no, OSR games or are only what what Arlen Walker would call retro clones, that you have to be rolling a D20 trying to roll high for core combat resolution, and that that's what makes up OSR. And if you feel like that, you should leave a call-in. If you don't feel like that, you should leave a call-in too. Um, let me know what you think about the OSR and OSR games and all of that sort of stuff. So the next thing that I want to talk about is actually kind of something that I want to say that I don't want to talk about, which is the whole thing that happened at the UK Games Expo. Um, Colin Green of Spike Pit had a, an episode that was a rant about it, and I replied with a bunch of Collins, and we have kind of had a conversation going back and forth. And Colin, if you listen to this, you're welcome to use any and all of my call-ins um, in an episode that you do. But I think I, at this point, would feel better just kind of trying to not even necessarily distance myself. That sounds like I'm just kind of cooling off a bit and, and not necessarily giving more of my opinions on the matter because there's uh, kind of a number of different upsetting things from the original upsetting incident to the possibility that the original upsetting incident didn't happen the way that it was said to have happened to some of the sort of tribalism and deplatforming stuff that's going around in the aftermath and anyway that's more detail than i had originally planned at all so let's just for me at least i'm gonna leave it at what i said in the call-ins to colin green like i said colin you're welcome to use any and all of them i don't think i said anything too incendiary um at least I hope not. I hope I'm remembering that correctly. But just generally, um, I think that's going to be that for me. So, um, yeah, if you hoped to hear my take on it, I'm not sure why you would. Um, yeah, go listen to Spike Pit. Spike Pit is great. So what do I want to talk about? Well, I want to talk more about Supers RPGs, and I want to talk more about 
some of these games that I uh, am thinking about, in particular Blade of the Iron Throne. And one of the things that I thought is that I might run through an example combat, and then I thought, well, wait a second, there's an example combat in the book that I think does a good job of showing off the um, way things work. So I'm going to just read to you from the book. Once again, so this is the example combat that is at the end of the chapter on Melee, chapter four, Melee in Blade of the Iron Throne. And I'm going to actually start with the end and read the narrativized version of it. But one of the things to think about is that all of this narrative stuff is mechanically supported. There's a lot of details in the narrative that are not just... Um, a character adding random detail based on a D20 roll. This is all mechanically going on. So let's start with the narrative. Two Picts charged Skuld's skull splitter. He wheeled, getting one between himself and the other. Skuld then brought his axe down, a mere blink of an eye before his Pictish opponent's spear thrust hit home, cleaving the savage's chest to the spine and knocking him to the ground dead. He then wheeled to receive the second pick, coolly swept aside his opponent's spear thrust with his axe, and in the same fluid motion brought the weapon around in a narrow arc, dipping under the shield's rim to sever the pick's leg just below the crotch. With the fallen pick screaming on the ground and spurting out his life in but a few heartbeats, Skull leaves the scene of carnage. So that was... Uh, Right, the, the IRL time, a very quick exchange. Um, although, to be fair, I talked about how in our Ash game we had um, a three-hour session, our, our three-hour The Battle of Iron Fang Keep lasted in real life for the characters about a minute of, of action. So it's not like that's something that is unique to this RPG. <coughs> Excuse me. I've got some, I don't know if you can tell, I've got some stuff in my nose. But I'm going to read through the whole section on an example of melee combat to show you how that narrativized thing was um, arrived at. Skuld Skull Splitter, the Danish Reaver, has just plundered some foul deity's sacred jewel from its shrine among the Orkneys. Trying to make his way back to a ship, two pursuing Pictish savages catch up with him on the rocky beach and rush him. Skull Skull Splitter. And then we have the stats and the equipment that he is carrying. And the stats and equipment for the Pictish Savages. Um, and I'm not going to read out all of that. Um, the big thing is that Skull Skull Splitter is much more of a... Um, shall we say sword and sorcery style hero. He has a great big long hafted axe and a lot of melee points to throw on dice. And the Picts are much more like mooks. Um, they have short spears that they use one-handed and small shields. As the Picts rush Skull, the ref informs the player that the combat will take place on particularly bad footing, the wet rocks of the beach, necessitating a deduction of two dice from all combatants' MPs, bringing them down to 17 and 8, respectively. 
At the outset of combat round one, the referee declares that the pick's charge puts them into an aggressive stance and that Scold, seeing them rush at him, has time to prepare himself and declare a stance as well. Wanting to finish this combat before the picks can arrive, the player has Scold assume an aggressive stance as well and also announces that Scold is going to move in such a way that one pick is between himself and the other, preventing the second pick from attacking him right away. This necessitates an unopposed terrain check with a single success required. The player commits five dice, taking his MP to 12, and achieves four successes, for now easily avoiding the second pick among the rocks and boulders. The pick's intention to attack is apparent from his ferocious charge, and the player declares Scold as attacker as well. As both combatants have assumed aggressive stances, their MPs receive two bonus dice each, for 14 and 10 respectively. With both combatants attacking, an opposed reflex check will determine who attacks fractionally first, but maneuvers and dice must be assigned before this check. The player, that's Scold's player, announces a cleave from diagonally above the pick's head and shoulders, target zone 4, for 11 dice executed at long reach. The ref declares a thrust at the groin, target zone 10, for all the pick's 10 dice. Both combatants' reflex is then checked with a TN equal to their weapon's attack target number, ATN. As the pick's spear has a reach M and Scold's axe has a reach L, Scold receives a plus one die bonus and the pick a corresponding one die penalty. Scold rolls seven dice, reflex six plus one, against TN eight, achieving but one success. The pick rolls four dice. Reflex 5 minus 1 against TN8, achieving 4 successes. The pick goes first. The player, however, has an ace up his sleeve and has Scold attempt stealing initiative. He pays the activation cost of 2 dice, half opponent's sagacity, and after his previous bad luck decides to play it safe and purchase 1 bonus dice for the check for a total activation cost of 3 dice. This uses up the uncommitted remainder of his MP. The Pict checks Daring with a flat penalty of 1 for having the weapon with shorter reach, and Scold his own Cunning with a flat bonus of 1 for having the weapon with the longer reach, and the 1 purchase bonus die. Scold thus rows 7 dice, Cunning 5 plus 1 plus 1, against a static TN7, achieving 3 successes. The Pict rolls 4 dice, Daring 5 minus 1, against a static TN7, achieving 2 successes. Just as the pick thrusts with his spear, Scold's axe comes down hard. So if you remember, that is in the narrative, Scold attacking just fractionally before the Pict, because Scold stole initiative. Scold attacks with the MP dice previously committed, rolling 11 dice against his ATN 8 and achieving 5 successes. The Pict cannot defend, so the attack quality success is 5. The player rolls d6 on the cleaving damage tables to determine the exact location, achieving a 3 result in a cross cut across the pick's chest, which is protected by his leather jerkin. The impact rating is determined by then taking the quality of success, adding half of brawn, and adding the damage reduction, 3 plus 1 for the armor, for a total of 13. From this impact, and adding the damage rating, um, 3 plus 1 for striking armor, for a total of 13. From this impact rating is subtracted half the pick's brawn and his chest armor value for the remaining total of 8, corresponding to the maximum wound level of 6. As the pick is just a mook, a level 6 injury kills him instantly without the need to consult the wound tables. 
As Skuld has neither MP or opponent remaining, there is no second exchange to this combat round, and the second combat round commences with the remaining picks charging Skuld across the rocky beach. The ref declares that all fighters still have to deduct two dice from their MP for treacherous footing, and that Skuld can only just turn in time to receive the charging pick and cannot thus assume a stance. He announces that the pick's charge effectively puts him into aggressive stance. <coughs> Combat round two starts with the declaration of attacker defense. The pick is declared as aggressor, granting him two bonus dice from the stance for a total melee pool of ten, and as Skuld the defender. Next, the aggressor declares maneuver and assigned dice. He declares a thrust with seven dice at Skuld's crotch, target zone 10. Smiling evilly, Skuld's player declares a counter, paying the activation cost of three dice and assigning 10 of his remaining 14 melee pool dice to it. The picked rolls his assigned seven dice against attack target number eight with a penalty of one for having a weapon one reach increment shorter than Skuld for a total of six dice and achieves three successes. Skuld's player rolls the assigned ten dice against the attack's defense target number of eight as per the counter rules, achieving four successes. With a defense quality of success of one, a sweep of the axe knocks aside the thrusting spear harmlessly and the attacker now on to exchange two exhumes the role of defender, with counter even defense quality of success of zero would allow him to do so. Exchange two commences with Skuld assuming the role of aggressor. The pick has three remaining MP die and so Skuld four, but as per the counter rules, Skuld receives dice equal to the total successes in the countered attack as bonus a dice and his follow-up attack. As the pick achieved three successes, so now Skuld receives three bonus dice for an MP of seven. The exchange begins with a declaration of attack, with the player declaring an attack with all seven dice, randomly as per the rules for the follow-up on a counter. A d12 is rolled on the counter table 3.3 to determine the exact nature of Skuld's attack, and yields a result of two, a cross cut at thigh height. The pick declares a block with his remaining three dice as his defense. The player rolls the assigned seven dice against attack target number eight, achieving four successes. The pick rolls three dice against his shield's defense target number of six, achieving two successes for an attack quality of success of two. The player rolls d6 on the cleaving tables to determine the exact hit location, achieving a four for a cut to the thigh, which is unarmored. The impact rating is determined by taking the attack quality of success of two, adding half of brawn four, and the weapon damage rating three for a total of nine. From the impact rating is subtracted half the defender's brawn three for a net total of six, once again enough to kill a mook like the pick without the need to look up the injury on the wound table. Exchange two of the combat round ends with the second pick falling down dead or dying. Combat round three begins with the referee announcing that the two dice penalty for bad footing does not apply to the prone pick, but that Skuld is still on bad footing. As he is the only combatant standing, he does not simply subtract two dice, but rather must pass a terrain check to avoid falling. The pick is prone and thus at half MP for an MP of five. To this, shock 15 from the preceding exchange is applied, thus bringing the pick's MP to zero, and the remaining 10 dice added as bonus dice to scold MP against the pick, raising his MP for the combat round to 27. Um, so that would be useful if the pick had not been killed with the sweep to the thigh. So, what you see, let me read the narrative again, just now that we have gone through exactly what happened mechanically, so that you can see how everything that is in the narrative has come out of the mechanics of the combat. 
Two picks charged Skull's skull splitter. He wheeled, getting one between himself and the other. That's that terrain check from earlier. That's that, the, not from earlier, the first terrain check. Skull then brought his axe down in her blink of an eye before the Pictish opponent's spear thrust hit home. That stealing initiative, cleaving the savage's chest to the spine and knocking him to the ground dead. That's that level six wound that he dealt to the first pick. He then wheeled to receive the second pick, coolly swept aside his opponent's spear thrust with his axe. That's the counter. And in the same fluid motion, remember because the counter has a random zone to strike back against, Brought the weapon around in a narrow arc, dipping under the shield's rim because the pig tried to block with his shield to sever the pig's leg just below the crotch. <coughs> and that's his second attack. With the fallen pig screaming on the ground and spurting out his life in but a few heartbeats, Skold leaves the scene of carnage. So, yeah, that's why I think Blade of the Iron Throne is really cool because, holy shit, that... Like I said, that was all mechanical. That's so neat. That, um, you know, none of that was rolling D20s and rolling damage and then coming up with an explanation for why the attack hit and the damage was the way it was. Anyway, which is not to say that rolling D20s and coming up with explanations is necessarily bad. I enjoy that part of games too, but this is just so cool. And I think it's something really, like I said, it's it's something neat and special and unique and worth trying out at the very least. So I hope that if you're listening to this, this gives you some idea for why I think Blade of the Iron Throne is worth at least trying for a session or two. Um, and I'm going to pause the recording here and come back and talk about something else. Okay, so I'm back. Two announcements. First one, Super June is definitely continuing. Um, I have been having a blast reviewing or rather overviewing Super's games for you guys. Um, it's really cool to talk about a whole bunch of different games and kind of what I think is cool about them and all of that. And I, I like to think that it's been a really positive experience. Um, so yeah, it's been uh, very cool and we're going to do more of it. I think today I'm not likely to post today as of the time of recording. I'm not likely to post a review today because I think today is going to be a read day, not a post day. But I am actually ahead of my schedule. So that's okay. Um, I don't need to post today to stay on schedule, which is great. Um, the other thing is that I just checked the total anchor listens and we are at 112 even more. So that means like eight people listened to my podcast overnight. That's awesome. That's so cool. Um, I It's really hard for me to put into words just how good that makes me feel that people are listening to the podcast and I assume getting something out of it. I, I'd assume that's why you would listen multiple times at least. Um, and I suspect that I am not attracting a whole lot of new viewers, but rather getting multiple listens from people who already listened. But yeah, 112 listens. I, at one point, was despairing of ever getting more than like 10 or 15, um, and we're at 112. That, that just makes me feel awesome. 
I hope you have enjoyed the podcast so far. I hope you continue to enjoy the podcast. Um, I think this is going to be the end for this episode. So hit me up on Twitter if you want to talk about the podcast or Blade of the Iron Throne or OSR games or whatever else at Cows from Powis. Hit me up here on Anchor if you want to talk. Um, otherwise, I've been Arlen Walker and I've been live from Pelham's Wasteland. See you next time. Sorry, one more thing. I had an idea for July. I had an idea for what sort of theme could go with the month, and that is, I talked to Colin a little bit about this, that is um, R-rated stuff. Just because, um, as I, I put it to him, I'm a, you know, I'm a man in my 20s. I don't have kids, so I don't have to worry about them stumbling onto anything inappropriate, all that sort of stuff. I can just enjoy, you know, violent action movies and scenes with nudity in them and Game of Thrones early seasons all by myself and have lots of fun with that. And so what I was thinking was that I would do a whole set of overviews for RPGs that are um, either include some kind of risque stuff or are just super violent. And honestly, Blade of the Iron Throne could probably fit because I haven't read through um, on the podcast the descriptions of the wounds, but they are really brutal. Um, so yeah, that's an idea. If you like that idea, um, let me know because I think I think it'd be fun to talk about kind of I've got a couple. There's um, one called Barbarin where you get um, bonus points to your ability to sleep with beautiful women for killing things and bonus points to killing things for sleeping with beautiful women, which is uh, just kind of weird and interesting and and. I'm not sure I would ever play one of these games because it seems like it might be awkward. And honestly, I have plenty of fun without any of these risque elements. But, you know, or then there's um, Alpha Blue, which is like sci-fi through the lens of like 70s and 80s pornography. And yeah, it's uh, weird stuff, but interesting. It's kind of... uh, like I said, I don't necessarily need to play it, but it's kind of cool that it exists. Um, I think it sort of speaks to the the variety of things that are available for tabletop RPGs. So yeah, if you think that would be a cool idea, or if you have strong opinions otherwise, if you think, God, I would hate the idea of playing through a game where sex is anything more than a sort of misty zone that nobody goes into off in the distance then uh let me know because i i really just you know i have so much time on my hands and i'm bored all the time and that's why i bother people on twitter and all that and i i just really like you know hanging out and talking with people um so yeah hit me up